so welcome to a, uh, another in the series of uh, Idea Collider, which is a, uh, a book a club uh, interview podcast thing where we invite the authors of some of our favorite books to, to, to come and talk a little bit more about them. Um, and uh, I'm delighted to have uh, Vinay Prasad, who um, has written a book which directly touches on pharma uh, and, uh, and a little bit like Ben Goldacre's book a few years back, uh, Bad Pharma. It's kind of an in interesting one and, and a very important one, I think, for pharma to, to, to read. So, so Vinay, thank you so much for making the time. Um, could I ask you to introduce yourself to anyone who isn't aware of you and, and, and tell us a little bit more about the book that you wrote? Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm happy to do that. So I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm uh, an associate professor of medicine here at the Oregon Health and Science University. I'm a practicing hematologist and oncologist. Uh, in the States, we, we end up doing both. Um, and I spend about maybe a third of my time seeing patients uh, in the clinic and in the hospital setting. And then maybe about two thirds of my time, I spend focusing on health policy, um, from the cost of drugs to how drugs are approved, um, to medical practices that are perpetuated, that offer no net benefits. Um, those are the kinds of things I'm interested in. And um, I think the next part of your question was, how did you come to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess a couple years ago with a colleague from the University of Chicago, a dear friend, Adam Sifu, um, we wrote a book called Ending Medical Reversal. And that was a book about all those things doctors do recommend extol for decades that in retrospect, they say, whoops, we shouldn't have done that at all. They weren't things mm. that we improved upon. They were things we completely got wrong. So I wrote that book, and it was published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And um, you know, we had a good response to it. And I thought, I'm never writing a book again because it was also an exhausting ordeal, and you know, it took all this time, and um, there are so many more steps to it than I thought. Um, and and that and I, I I didn't I didn't hold that promise. So a couple of years later, I had been you know I'm an oncologist, been doing more and more work in the cancer space, and I found myself getting into arguments with people, whether it's on Twitter or at a panel at you know the Washington Post or wherever. Um, and I thought to myself that maybe some of the arguments that I was putting forth, um, you know, when delivered piecemeal, when delivered in a lecture, um, they really do seem in isolation, but might be nice to put them all together in one place um, so that people could see sort of how I thought about cancer medicine. Um, and, and that was sort of the impetus for the book, for writing Malignant, um, which, you know, should be coming out in April of this year. Nice. And, it's, and, and it is a pretty broad ranging sweep through, uh, as you say, the kind of the, the, those mistakes that have been made historically, but mistakes that we're making now as well, which is, um, you know, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll come on to talk about your view of pharma, pharma and its relationship with, uh, with, with, with oncologists. But um, maybe if we start all the way from the kind of end of the book, which I found intriguing, where you, you kind of deliver some ways in which you think oncology drug development could be improved. Um, it, it's 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 a long chapter, but could you could you summarize quickly the kind of five main kind of areas that uh, that, that that you think would you know we could focus on? You mean the chapter that's literally on like how do we develop drugs, or are you referring to the epilogue where it's about sort of even broader than that? No, that's uh, not well, let's go for the last chapter first, and then we can get into the kind of broader uh, stuff. Okay, so I guess I mean my general view of the topic is, and and I should be clear, you know, at the outset, so that people don't feel like I'm blaming pharma, because in fact. I don't think in the book, and I don't personally blame the pharmaceutical industry. I think most of the people in the industry are good people, well-intentioned people, uh, people who are motivated to do good. Um, 
by good I mean develop drugs um, and bring them to market uh, that presumably will be profitable and be able to generate revenue to sustain that uh, that process. Um, what I do fault is I think in many ways the regulations that are supposed to bend I think commercial interest towards the public interest in a number of ways they deviate and they don't mm -hmm. deviate sort of in a random way they deviate because years of lobbying have produced deviations that lead to profitability at the expense of beneficial drugs. So to answer your question of, you know, how do I think drug development should proceed? I guess I start with the premise of like, what do we actually want? And what we, well, what we actually want are we want imatinibs. We want drugs that significantly improve clinical outcomes for people with cancer conditions. And if you want imatinibs, what do you need to do? Well, I think a couple of things you need to do are um, change a lot of the incentives around drug approval, because if you're able to bring a drug to market with sort of a 10-day survival benefit like erlotinib and pancreatic cancer, and a drug to market like neratinib um, with, uh, you know, horrific grade three diarrhea um, that has a sliver of IDFS, you know, surrogate endpoint benefit in breast cancer, um, and make significant revenues from such drugs, well, then you're going to chase such drugs. And so part of that chapter is about what can we do in drug regulation? How can we incentivize imatinibs over regorafenibs, for instance? Um, how do we incentivize the good drugs over the bad drugs? Uh, but the other part is a bit about biology, which is that um, you know, some of the work we've done has seems to suggest that one of the best ways to know a drug will actually be beneficial in cancer, uh, sorry, let me put it the other way. Um, that, that if a drug, one of the ways to know a drug won't be beneficial in cancer is if a drug lacks activity in that tumor type. So drugs that lack single agent activity are drugs that I generally think should be um, really the exception and not the rule. They should be pursued very fleetingly. And yet we see right now in the immunotherapy space that they are pursued with much vigor in combinations with drugs that are known to have activity um, in you know upwards of thousand randomized, thousand clinical trials, not all randomized. So I guess I would say, like when it comes to drug development, we want drugs that you know hit important targets. There's some nice work by Jason Schletzer showing that many of these drugs don't hit what you think they hit. We want drugs that are active in early phase clinical trials, and we want to incentivize people to develop drugs. I think that really have bang for the buck. Um, but I think the current regulatory landscape does not do that at all. It incentivizes people to bring anything to market, um, often with a very low standard, and those can be almost just as profitable as drugs that are really transformative. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, yeah, because you talk about this kind of almost perverse set of incentives, both from the regulator and potentially also from the from, from the market itself, where you know pricing and uh, and uh, and maybe lack of judgment about whether things are true uh, true game changes or whether they're just uh, you know, incremental improvements. Um, so that so you address that incentivization of bad behavior or 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 or, or less productive behavior, um, but you do call out the the, the kind of positive uh, examples like imatinib, um, uh, and 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 talk a lot in the book about you know how you're going to how we're going to get more of those. I think the single agent um, activity one is was an intriguing one because you're right. The trend seems to be towards combination, seems to be towards. Um, you know, bundling uh, sort of layers of effects on, on top of, you know, drugs we already have. Right. Um, and, and along which, those lines, you know, one of the most misused words in the cancer drug space is synergy. Um, people mm -hmm. point out that the drug may not have activity, but it has a synergistic effect with uh, pd one 
Um, but I think synergy is broadly misused. Um, it's misused even in sort of a very fundamental basic science way. And the and sort of this narrative that these drugs, you know, that don't work individually will work magically well together, I think has fueled many, many uh, companies and many, many sort of clinical studies um, that have failed to deliver. I mean, we've seen just sort of a slew of failed uh, uh, additional immunotherapy agents combined with checkpoint inhibitors, for instance, in recent years. Um, and I think that's also part of the incentivization because the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is so large. Um, so there is more money to try things with very low pretest probability of succeeding. I think that's part of the incentive problem. And, and actually, just to define that problem, because yeah. oncology has seen a relatively recent explosion in that, uh, in that uh, scale of opportunity. Do you think that is likely to stay at its current level to increase or will it explode with, with, with something happening to it? Because it's an unprecedented market at the moment. Yeah, I guess I would say that um, it will uh, it will uh, it, it is entirely contingent on Richard Pazder. Uh, as long as Richard Pazder is at the head of the oncology drug, as as long as Richard Pazder is at the head of um, uh, uh, the I guess it's called the Center for Excellence now in cancer, I think we're going to see continued bonanza um, growth in oncology because you know we have some unpublished work that shows this, but in a number of ways in which ways in which you could show the FDA has lowered the bar for regulatory approval across different classes, different tumor settings. And as long as you lower the bar for regulatory approval, move the bar towards markers that don't actually correlate strongly with how well people feel, um, those are easier hurdles to jump over. And as long as the hurdles get easier to jump over, then the incentive to jump over them is very, very high. Um, and on the back end, you're gonna make a lot of money, especially in the US marketplace, where we have a number of perversities that will guarantee you get reimbursed at pretty much whatever price you want. Um, so then the other thing of the piece of the puzzle is those incentives cannot change. So, um, you know, drug price regulation could change some of the bonanza or an FDA, uh, uh, a new sort of philosophy in the FDA that raises the bar could change the bonanza. I think both those things will happen. They will happen in my lifetime for sure. Um, but I don't see them happening in the near future. Um, so, uh, as, you know, pretty much as long as Dr. Pazders remains in that position, it's going to be bonanza as long as we don't have drug reform, drug price reform yeah. in the States. Okay, and one one of the ways in which the hurdles were lowered was clearly the uh, the kind of embrace of surrogate endpoints yeah. for, uh, for 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 approving drugs. Um, but you talk in the book a lot about the difference between surrogate endpoints and the kind of meaningful clinical value. So, do you think that was the right intention, wrongly deployed, or was something else happening with uh, embrace of surrogates? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. I guess, I mean, let me define for your listeners. I know they probably already know, many of them already know, but let me define, you know, what really is a surrogate endpoint? I guess sort of in cancer medicine, when you um, run a clinical study and let's just say a randomized controlled trial, you can measure things directly that really matter to people. So you can say, um, do people who get my new drug versus the best available standard of care, do they live longer? Or uh, do they have improved health-related quality of life based on sort of a global survey, such as um, scales put out by the EORTC, for instance? Um, you could also ask maybe, um, do they improve a symptom that's really known to be debilitating in this cancer? For instance, the myeloproliferative neoplasms often like splenomegaly and early satiety is a big problem. And so you can directly measure, um, you know, feelings uh, that stem from splenomegaly. So that's how, you know, Ruxolit have got approved that PRO, patient reported outcome. And so I think all of those endpoints I consider to be clinical endpoints. They're endpoints that are in and of themselves meaningful to patients. They have value. You're directly measuring what you want to accomplish. Then there are a number of endpoints that are convenient to measure. Um, they're easier to get at. 
Um, in many cases, we may believe we get at them sooner. Um, and, and those are endpoints that um, may correlate with what you care about. They may have some relationship, um, but it may not be a perfect relationship. And those are surrogate endpoints. And so the classic ones you see in oncology are measures of tumor growth and tumor shrinkage. Uh, tumor shrinkage, of course, the response rate. You know, you gave a drug to 100 people. What percent of people had 30% or more tumor shrinkage? And then you start to unpack that a little bit and you see, well, 30% is arbitrary. And I go through some of the history for, you know, why that's the case. It's 30% and not a different percentage. Um, and then you start to unpack um, uh, um we start to unpack growth. Growth is 20%. Uh, that's progression. Well, that's also arbitrary. Um, and do drugs that shrink tumors 30% um, or more in higher fractions of patients, do they really make us live longer or live better? You start to get into that literature, as I, you know, I cover extensively in chapters two and three. Um, you find that the correlations are not as strong as you might hope. Um, and in the modern world, we're taking it to the next level. We have a whole new slew of surrogates that we're using, like minimal residual disease. So I want to know that my myeloma um, is reduced from one cell out of a million to one cell out of 10 millions or something like that, 25 cells out of a million on uh, flow cytometry. So there are all these different measures in which we can look at the cells. But if you're perfectly honest, patients don't necessarily feel those cutoffs. A person may feel great with 29% um, tumor shrinkage. They may feel no better with 31% tumor shrinkage, or they may feel lousy with 31% tumor shrinkage. A patient may... Um, uh, feel awful when their tumors get 16% bigger long before they progress. So these don't always correlate with how we feel or how long we live. Um, do I think it was motivated by good intentions? I think absolutely. Um, you know, in cancer medicine, these surrogates were developed at a time where um, we wanted to, and we didn't have a lot of drugs that were effective in cancer, and we wanted to figure out ways in which we could quickly uh, know if drugs were benefiting our patients. And activity or response rate, that's a really convenient easy to measure metric. And you would know that drugs that have no activity are probably not really doing anything and drugs that have activity are worth pursuing. Um, the way in which I think this logic has been wrongly deployed or twisted over time is that we've forgotten that activity was a prerequisite to study if a drug benefited somebody in a meaningful way. Um, but we, what was supposed to be the starting point has become the stopping, has become the finish line. And so now we think of activity as, well, it's active, therefore it benefits our patients. And, and that's kind of the bridge too far. Um, yeah. 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 And, do you, and do you think, because clearly one of the reasons was the intention of speeding drugs to getting to market. And if, you know, if, if, if Richard Pazder is going to continue anything, it'll be that, right, which is accelerating approval. Do we think the surrogates do actually change speed to market? That's a great Isn't question. Because yeah. in the book, you, you kind of argue, you know, that might be a false belief. Yes, that's what I believe it to be. Um, so I, here, here's, um, here's my thoughts on it. So I guess I'd say the use of surrogate will certainly increase the number of drugs that get to market because there are drugs that improve surrogates that don't improve our longevity and our quality of life that will come to market that otherwise would not come to market. So do they give the illusion of more drugs approved per year? Do they make us feel as if we're making progress? Absolutely. But do they, for an individual drug, actually speed the time to market? And we've done a number of investigations that have kind of probed this. Um, the one sort of paper that we put out that uh, was very recent was um, a paper by Emerson Chen um, and colleagues and myself um, that appeared in JAMA Internal Medicine that tried to assess the, the, the study time reduction by the use of surrogates. And it found some things that are kind of paradoxical, but um, kind of makes sense when you kind of get into technical understanding. So let's say I develop a drug in relapsed leukemia. 
well, that's not a good setting to be in. That's a setting where maybe median survival is six months, let's say hypothetically. If I develop the drug and I want to get it FDA approved based on response rate, what do I need to show? Well, I get 100 patients, I need to show the drug has maybe say a 20, 30% response rate. Um, and, and, and I need to take that to the FDA. The FDA is going to come back at you and they're going to say, well, you've proven that 30% of people have tumor shrinkage, but what is the median duration of response? So among those in whom the tumors shrink, um, how long did it stay shrunk? Um, and the FDA says, we don't want responses that are fleeting. We want responses that are enduring. And so now suddenly for those people in whom there's a response, you've got to follow them out, just wait for the median duration of response, or at least to know it's not very, very quick. And sometimes you look through studies and you see the median duration of response is 16 months, 18 months, 19 months, 20 months, for instance. And what you've done is you've added a lot of study time. You thought the surrogate was going to save you time. And in fact, response rate might have saved you time. But because you need to know those responses are enduring, you have to wait to see that they're enduring. And that takes a lot of time. In contrast, for that same hypothetical drug, you could run a randomized phase three trial in a relapse leukemia setting. And the only would have to wait until the drug has an OS benefit. And that might be actually, surprisingly, maybe even faster than the response rate metric. And so anyway, this is all sort of, you know, just an the story I'm telling you. But Emerson Chen developed a model, multivariate model, where he went through many, many clinical trials. And he showed that there is, in fact, a reduction. Surrogates do speed drugs to market. Um, it's about 11% of, of the entire drug development time. So something on the order of 11 months out of 8.4 years of drug development. Um, but he did also show in that paper, it depends on the line you're pursuing. And in the third line or relapse setting, there was actually no association with improved study time. So I do think that in some cases, they don't um, shave time. And I'll add one more piece to the puzzle. The additional piece to the puzzle is that surrogates change, um, I think, behavior in unanticipated ways. So a drug company that develops a new drug in metastatic breast cancer if they lived in a world where the FDA said you had to show an OS benefit, they would obviously and invariably go to the relapse refractory setting and run that trial because that will read out quicker. They won't go to the frontline setting. It may take you know 30 months to read out. Um, if they know that they're allowed to get drug approval in metastatic breast cancer based on progression-free survival, they might say, let's trade some of the speed of PFS for market share. So let's run a frontline metastatic breast cancer trial with PFS. We'll get the readout roughly in what it would have taken to do a relapse refractory breast cancer trial for OS. And you know, in the book, I give you that one example that I think is sort of a nice example that shows we may be making choices about where we study new drugs that take some of the speed of surrogacy and barters it away from market share. That's it. It's really interesting. And just to jump to a point yeah. that you make later in the book as well about earlier treatment of cancer being a kind of automatically good thing. Um, you know, you raise, you know, that it's not always uh, you know, obvious that, uh, that that intervening earlier in a cancer course is a, is, is a good thing, too. So, um, you, you know, could you, could you elaborate on, 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 on that view? Yeah, that's something that I think... Um um, maybe uh, is not well appreciated um, sort of in the biotech community, but it's also not well appreciated among oncologists. But I guess I'd say this, there is an idea that it is always better to treat something earlier than later. A, a, um, a stitch in time saves nine, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, it's a very seductive idea. And in most things in our lives, it makes perfect sense. Your car starts making a knocking sound. You better get that taken care of because otherwise you're going to blow the whole axle, you know, something like that. We all have those situations in our lives, but is that applicable to cancer medicine? 
And I guess I'd say there are certainly some cases in which it is applicable. There are studies that show the early treatment of, you know, a certain condition is associated with improved long-term outcomes. But we also have a number of studies that show early treatment, more treatment is not necessarily better. Um, one of the classic examples is the use of the blood-based protein CA125 um, for ovarian cancer. And you can see this rise before cancer relapses. And you can give treatment, chemotherapy, before you otherwise would. And if you did that, you would feel good and you'd give a lot more chemotherapy and it would be, and it would be sooner, but women would not live one moment longer as shown in an elegant Lancet paper. We've also had some papers on colon cancer that show, you know, do you have to treat somebody with low burden metastatic disease that's asymptomatic or can you wait until the metastatic disease becomes symptomatic? And the results of these studies has in many cases been sobering. It isn't always the case as it isn't necessarily the case that early treatment is better. I think we're about to get a big dose of this when it comes to um, the, genomics re the genomics revolution. We now know that things like MDS and leukemia, um, the tail end of cancer, there may be an early precursor um, uh, uh, um, clonal hematopoiesis event. And there are a lot of people interested in going to those early precursor events and treating them. Well, one of the things you might be doing is treating a lot of people whose cancers or lesions were never destined to progress. It was never going to cause them harm. Um, so I guess because our drugs maybe aren't as great as we think and they have narrow therapeutic windows, because there may be sub subgroups of people with early disease who are not destined to progress rapidly, um, it isn't, and, and for the simple fact that empirical data shows us, it isn't always the case that early treatment is better. Um, and I think that the takeaway there is, is not to, to give up that hypothesis, it's worth testing, but to not believe that just because you treat early, you're guaranteed a winner. You need to test that to see if that's the case. And, um, and testing is an intriguing uh, element of the book too, the idea of precision medicine or precision medicine is in, in, in commas as you, uh, uh, right. as you call it. Um, and there was, a, there was a piece in there where I think you said if you send your cancer for two different tests in the US now, you won't necessarily get paired with the same drug uh, as a result. So, you know, it, with precision medicine, is it, are we close to it being real or is it just, or is it still hype? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I guess I'd say, um, you know, um, when I hear the word precision medicine, I think that's kind of a very broad category. So let me kind of break it out into a couple of categories. So one, um, uh, uh, is it the case that for certain tumor types, there are unique driver mutations that really are responsible for the majority of that disease and drugging those driver mutations confer a benefit. So for instance, the BCR ABLES in CML. BCR ABLES is implicated in like 97, 98, 99% of CML. And when you drug it, you get great results. Let's take another example, uh, tropomycin receptor kinase trekfusions. Trekfusion is a very rare genomic event, a fusion event that doesn't happen sort of uh, all the time, it happens kind of at random. And when it does happen, you get sort of very unusual cancers, infantile dermatofibroma, uh, you get some soft tissue sarcomas, you get salivary gland tumors, you get very rare cancers. And you have a TREK fusion event, you have a child perhaps with a rare cancer, an adult with a rare cancer, you drug TREK, you get a pretty remarkable result. Um, same with BRAF and melanoma. 65, you know, 70% of melanoma, metastatic melanoma has a BRAF V600 mutation. You drug it, you get a good response. So are we going to continue to find um, that in certain tumor types with certain phenotypes, we have driver mutations that are druggable? Yes. Um, are this, is this going to account for the majority of the human burden of cancer? No. We have a paper that came out in JAM Oncology where we've mapped these kinds of drug approvals over time, 
And we say that we're now at probably about 8% of all, uh, all cancers have one of these sort of druggable genomic alterations. Maybe about 4% of all cancer patients will have a response to these drugs. The median duration of that response will be about 30 months. They're not always as enduring as Gleevec. Um, and the rate at which this has grown over time is about half a percent a year. So precision oncology, meaning bucket one, um, unique phenotype, druggable targets, you know, it's going to keep expanding, I think, about 1% per year. The next bucket um, is the bucket of the true promise of precision oncology, which is, I think, personalized or truly individualized therapy. We're going to take a patient with colon cancer. We're going to sequence them. We're going to find unique constellations of mutations in patients. We're going to come up with tailored cocktails that we give these patients. We're going to have durable, long-lasting remissions. And I think there, I think the hype has really outpaced the reality. Um, for that sort of category of things, um, there is, um, you know, uh, a lot of challenges. And one of the challenges is the challenge that you, you spoke about, which is that um, from very limited and small studies, if you take the exact same patient's tumor and you send it to two commercial companies and you say, what drug should I give my patient with cholangiocarcinoma? Um, there is discordance between those two companies' recommendations. And I, I believe, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was only in like a minority of situations that they actually agreed on giving them the same drug. Um, that's problematic. I mean, I think that's deeply problematic. And there may be, it might not be because the test is wrong. It might be that there is so much um, tumor heterogeneity that one slice is different than the next. That could be the answer. But if, if you're really, if that's really the case and you're only drugging a part of the tumor, uh, you can't really expect a long lasting or durable result. And I think my bigger problem with that in that chapter, I think chapter eight on, you know, will precision oncology save us, is that many of the proponents of that strategy are not willing to subject the strategy to sort of rigorous randomized trials. They are willing to use sort of anecdotal examples to push it forward. And, and that to me is troubling. That's sort of like saying, um, you know, we think this is going to work. It's going to be so wonderful, but you're not allowed to test it. Um, I think that's problematic. Yeah. And, uh, and that sort of, I think, segues into, you know, part of the book is really about, the um, you know, you call this the pipeline rather than the pipeline of, of, of oncology drugs. And, and, and not just because pharma is, is, is pushing hard, but actually because of the words that are used for, because of the, you know, the phrases that are used to describe these drugs. Could you, um, you know, give folks an idea of what you mean by the pipeline? Yeah, I, I guess um, this is a term that a very seasoned reporter once told me, that they say that, you know, we're living in the oncology hype line. And I guess, what do I mean by hype line? I guess what I mean by hype line is, is that even at very early stages of drug development, from molecular targeting, molecular target, act, you know, isolation and sort of high throughput screening and development of target compounds and cell culture work, um, we start to see very inflated rhetoric being used around drugs. I mean, I believe that sort of um, the entire sort of pre-approval process by which we develop drugs, give them, give them names, um, run clinical trials, advertise those clinical trials, present them at ASCO and ESMO and ASH, um, have you know, commercial companies make slick videos of their mechanism of action, um, talk about them to investors on glossy brochures, um, get KOLs to participate in um, uh, advisory boards where they learn about the drug and can inform other people about them. I mean, all of that is careful grooming of a product so that you have a very positive association with it. It's the similar way in which when I think about Coca-Cola, I, I mean, I feel good on the inside. Coca-Cola has spent a lot of money to get me to have a very positive impression of the product, um, even though I'm not sure if drinking Coke all the time is good for you. And, I, you know, we all have our thoughts on that. Um, but 
I certainly have a warm feeling for Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola or, you know, Doritos or, you know, whatever. And similarly, I think the industry spends money and the process encourages sort of a very warm and fuzzy feeling about new drugs in a way that we don't get for older drugs. So when I say a drug like cyclophosphamide or vincristine or etoposide pills, you're like, oh, that's, that sounds terrible. That's old, you know, barbaric chemotherapy. I don't want to take any etoposide pill when I can take, you know, pazopinib or, or votriant or, you know, sunitinib, you know, or sutant, you know, the brand names. Um, you know, it sounds better. Um, so I think that's part of the pipeline, pipeline problem. The other part is the redundancy. So, you know, some people have looked at the pipelines of major pharmaceutical firms and they find that, you know, they're all chasing the same targets. You know, they're all going after the same things. There's a, a, a FOMO there, a fear of missing out on the next uh, checkpoint inhibitor, you know, fear of, of being, you know, the fifth um, PDL1 drug. And so companies pursue targets in, in, in duplicate. Um, I think the pipeline, you know, to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of okay with the pipeline. You know, I guess we all have to be. Um, um, you know, you all, you have you have to like you know what, what's the word I, the the way I say it is um, you have to um, develop drugs like a believer, but you have to assess them like a skeptic. And if the assessment like a skeptic that that we lose, um, it's okay to develop drugs like a believer. If you're going to spend all your time and energy developing a drug, you really should believe in it. But when you ask other people to use that drug, I think that's when you need a skeptic to say, okay, sounds promising, but you know how are we going to test this or assess this? Which is interesting because I think that um, clearly part of the book is uh, examining the relationships between pharma and oncologists in, in particular, or pharma and the regulators and oncologists, and the kind of triangle that is yeah. presented there. So, yeah. you know, what do what be, because I think you would typically be characterized as a kind of almost an antagonist of the relationship between pharma and oncologists. You know, what do you think is a healthy relationship, um, you know, in, in 2020 between oncologists and, and, and pharma companies? That's a great question. So I guess I would say, I want to also preface this by giving you like a little bit of, of how I personally feel about it. Um, I think that um, there are many, many people for, who work in the industry um, who are super bright and I want to have dinner with and have a conversation with. Um, I would love, you know, I love to do that. I have so many of my dear friends who work in the industry. Um, and I'll go even further and say that some of my favorite lectures giving have been to the industry um, because the audience is um, more engaged and more knowledgeable about what I'm talking about than many academic audiences, to be honest with you, because to be honest, academics may not know a lot or care a lot about drug development and drug approval. Um, and in fact, I'll go, you know, I'll give you another piece of information, which is that I've given uh, lectures at major pharmaceutical companies. I've given some, you know, lectures at Pfizer. Um, when I do give lectures at companies, when I do sit down for a cup of coffee, uh, I, I completely sever the financial payments. I, I don't take any money. I don't let them pay for my meals. I pay for my own meal. They pay for their meal. Uh, you know, just like going out with, uh, you know, an old dear friend, you know, we're, we're going to pay our own meal. Um, uh, to me, the, the, the problem isn't that we interact, that academic oncologists and the industry interact. That's not the problem at all. The problem is the way in which the money moves through the system. And, and the way in which the money moves through the system is the industry spends a great deal of money um, on uh, get catering to not just any oncologist, but certain oncologists, the key opinion leaders. Um, they receive a, an inordinate amount of honoraria, consulting payments, advisory board payments. Um, they even do so when they're young. 
you know, we find a number of instances where somebody just one or two years out of fellowship is consulting for companies, giving, you know, information to companies. Um, in some cases, it's sort of hard to believe that a, a fellow one year out um, seeing in a lung cancer clinic is going to be able to tell AstraZeneca something that John Charles Soria couldn't tell them, who, you know, a man with more experience in lung cancer than anyone who's now their, you know, vice president. Um, so there's a bit of sort of incredulousness to sort of this relationship. I also think there's a lot of empirical data that shows, of course, these relationships are, and this money is not, you know, being thrown around for no reason. It's done for a purpose because it creates sort of positive impressions of products. It creates coverage decisions from NCCN. It encourages people to use the products. It's not just my opinion. You know, I give you a lot of data in the book for why that's the case. Um, uh, but I don't blame the industry. I mean, how can you blame the industry for encouraging and fostering these relationships and spending this money? You can't ask them voluntarily not to do it. The failure is a public failure. Why have Congress not passed legislation saying that many of these ties should be severed? Um, why does Medicare allow the NCCN to write coverage decisions for Medicare through the compendia and permit 85% of those panelists to have personal payments from the industry um, while recommending those products for off-label use? That's, that's, that's a public failure. Um, so the problem isn't the industry. The problem is the public regulation. Um, the relationships are fine. Uh, but the money needs to be cut. And and I like to think of it like, um, you know, the analogies I give are uh, like the courtroom. Um, you know, the judge and the plaintiff and the defendant's lawyer, um, uh, or sorry, the plaintiff's lawyer, um, they all have a close relationship. They may get drinks, uh, you know, after work. They may know each other and know each other's families. They may talk all the time about the law. Um, but, and that's all fine. We would encourage that sort of relationships. In fact, it might lead to sort of better, uh, you know, negotiated settlements or sort of, uh, or plea bargains, for instance. Um, but where we would have a problem would be if you found out that the defendant is paying the judge 20% of their salary. Uh, you know, that's when the money starts to be exchanged, we, we would feel a little bit concerned. And, and we are concerned in these cases, even in the absence of the evidence we have in biomedicine. In medicine, we have studies that show that this influence is associated with behavior. We don't have that for, for the courtroom. We don't have that for bribery in politics. I mean, there are no studies that show that, you know, bribing a president is associated with more favorable decisions. And yet we believe those things are wrong and we curtail that. So I do think there it's an interesting relationship. You have, a, you have systems in which you want actors to be impartial, lobby on behalf of their constituents, yet also interact, um, sometimes adversarially, but sometimes cooperatively. Um, and in those systems, impartiality is best preserved when financial ties are cut, in my opinion. And the other side of that um, equation, I guess, is, is also highlighted when you discuss the, the kind of ever-increasing prices of oncology medicines yeah. uh, and the interaction of that with you know, cost-effectiveness reviews and, uh, and so forth. Um, so maybe start with you know, your views on you know, the price explosion within oncology um, and whether that represents value to, 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 to patients. That's a good question. Well, I guess... Um, I mean, just to give your listeners some background, uh, you know, the average price of an anti-cancer drug that came to the U.S. market in the 70s uh, was about $100, $100 per month of therapy. Um, fast forward to uh, the late 1980s, early 1990s, and you're talking about several hundred dollars, maybe about $1,000. By 1999, we just probably tipped over the $1,000 mark um, in terms of the average price of one month of a new cancer drug. Fast forward to 2010, and we're at about $10,000. Fast forward to 2019, and we're at maybe about $14,000 per month of therapy, $15,000, $16,000, um, and some, you know, of course, even higher than that. Um, 
I guess it's clear to say that the price of an anti-cancer drug per month of therapy has far outpaced inflation. It's not explained even by cumulative R&D payments. That's a nice little um, um, piece of data shown by Peter Bach in a health affairs blog post. Um, it really has risen at a rate faster than you know, sort of some of the things you can sort of implicate it on. Um, what about value? Value, I mean, a simple way to measure value is what does it cost to add one good year of life back for a cancer patient, the sort of dollar per quality adjusted life year. And by all metrics of dollar per quality, um, that appears to be getting worse. We now have sort of some drugs being used in the country with astronomical dollars per quality. I'll you know, give a few examples. Pertuzumab in the metastatic breast cancer space in the $400,000 range. Regorafenib in colon cancer in the $900,000 range. Maybe a flibercept in colon cancer is infinite because there, there are other drugs that are cheaper uh, that work sort of similarly. Um, so, you know, maybe we're reaching sort of the final astonishing heights. Um, what about, uh, what do people in the industry say? I mean, I've had a number of frank discussions with people in the industry who say uh, that, yeah, we're aware that the prices are super high. The value is not what it was before. Um, and they're fearful that there will be, um, you know, some serious drug cost reform legislation. But they also say that until there is such a legislation, um, as a rational actor, it is in our best interest to try to maximize profits uh, right now, because that might not last forever. Uh, just like when you're, uh, you know, a doctor in your prime years, you're going to take extra shifts to make more money for your family. It's the same behavior. So, you know, again, I don't blame the industry. The industry is trying to extract, I think, money when the money, when the getting is good. And right now the getting is very, very good. Um, and so the result is the value is low. Um, I, again, I, of course, uh, you know, in every domain, and I hope through sort of the chapters on like, how do we fix the problem? Uh, you know, it is, it is the failure of the public, I think, to sort of put the, put the, put the, the, the rules of the road and not a failure of the actors who are rational actors. And you can't really blame somebody for being rational. Yeah, and, and you described the kind of budgeting system. Clearly, the U.S. is an odd ecosystem, anyway. Uh, but you described, but you know, the U.K. versus uh, versus the U.S. in that regard as having a sort of fixed budget, or it did until the Cancer Drugs Fund, right, right, kind of uh, to, to provide an extra sum of money for, uh, for 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 that. But there, you're making choices between life-saving interventions of you know across diseases rather than just within the cancer budget itself, right. And I think that you're absolutely right that like, you know, different nations have found different ways to make different choices. And, you know, many of the European nations are working and doing their best to make hard choices about what to prioritize on fixed budgets. Um, and that can lead to a lot of, um, I think, provocative news stories where there may be an individual patient not getting an individual drug. Um, and that patient may have a compelling story, but that drug may have low, poor evidence. And, and the healthcare system may be taking that money and spending it on a thousand infants whose lives are improved by that money that is not visible in the newspaper article, that's not in the Daily Mail. Um, you know, that you don't see those people who are benefiting from how that money is being spent. And so it's a classic sort of problem where um, it's easy to see the person who you feel is being wronged. It's hard to see the good that's coming out of those choices. Um, but you also talk about the U.S. The U.S. is such an outlier in this ecosystem because we have a number of problematic policies. One, um, we cover every approved cancer drug regardless of the price, and our largest payer, who pays nearly a trillion dollars on healthcare, cannot negotiate the price of these cancer drugs. I mean, they're spending, you know, so much money. Uh, it's the largest payer for cancer drugs, maybe maybe half the global budget. Uh, can't negotiate the price. Has to pay for all approved drugs, but that's not enough. It has to pay for drugs recommended for off-label uses by expert panels, where many of the experts might have received large payments from the industry. 
um, and might be recommending the exact same products that they're consulting on. Um, and the federal government has to pay and they can't negotiate that price. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's a bad system for those of us in the US, but it's a bad system for those of you in the UK as well. Because, because the way we make our choices, we make it very um, hard on global nations. Companies are gonna charge 50% what they charge in the US in your nation, uh, but that's way higher than they would be able to get, get away with if the US were able to exert some downward pressure. Um, companies are able to extract a lot of wealth from the US um, and, 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 and use that wealth to sort of lobby persuasively, I think globally. Um, and the other way in which it's distorted is the entire world takes their drug approval um, decisions from the United States. I mean, in my entire lifetime and my parents' lifetime, my parents, of course, are immigrants who came to the U.S., um, uh, they did so largely because of the reason that there's this global idea that the U.S. is the best in certain domains, and we are the best in drug regulation. We know what's the best drugs. If they're offering in the U.S., that's got to be what's best. And when the regulators in the U.S. are lowering the standards for drug approval, the world is going to look at that and say, they must be doing it for good reason, and we ought to do that as well. And so you see EMA and FDA approvals march in lockstep. You know, the EMA mm -hmm. and the FDA are agreeing on, you know, the vast majority of all drug approvals. And you see the same thing from Health Canada, from the Japanese uh, in India, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so U.S. policy decisions, I think, shape the world's cancer care, at least the developed at least at least high income countries, high income countries, cancer care, low and middle income countries, which I talk a little bit about in the book, they have different struggles. Yeah. And actually, that segues uh, aware of time, I should probably get into some of the but that segues neatly into the, uh, the the kind of chapter about the kind of, rep, you know, how representative the studies that we have are. Yeah. Of folks in the real world, you know, either you know uh, demographically or just in terms of you know their cancer, their comorbidities, and so forth. Could could, could you elaborate? Because that was a real jaw drop moment for me. Was about maybe how unrepresentative, you know, the studies that we're doing are. Yeah, um, you know, a couple of years ago, Chris Booth from Ontario, Canada, told me that um, cancer clinical trials give cancer drugs to Olympians with cancer. And it was kind of a, and the point was that like the people who are enrolling in clinical trials are, they're super young, they're super fit. If they didn't have cancer, they could compete for the Olympics. I mean, they're like really, really robust people. And in fact, you know, I've had patients on clinical trials who run marathons. I mean, you know, and I'll tell you, I can't run a marathon. I can guarantee I can't do that right now. Uh, um, so, I mean, but there are a number of ways in which you can measure and you can show that patients on pivotal clinical trials that lead to drug approval, they are dissimilar than average patients. Uh, one is age. Um, the majority of cancer patients in the U.S. are over the ages of 65 or 70 or 75. Um, but when you look in clinical trials, they are disproportionately represented. Um, I have the exact figures in the book, but across the board, um, maybe about 50% of people are over the age of 65 with cancer in the U.S. And maybe it's about 20 to 30% of people over that age um, with cancer in pivotal trials. And, and the same is true at every sort of age cutoff. Um, the other ways in which they're dissimilar are number of comorbidities, number of other medications they're taking, um, uh, their renal function, their liver, their liver function, their performance status, how well they feel, uh, are they getting out of bed, are they walking to the bathroom, their socioeconomic status, uh, their race, they tend to be white and affluent, their ability to, tr to travel to a center, to take time off work, to rent an apartment and be on a trial at Sloan Kettering, to have multiple family members care for them round the clock so they can participate in certain clinical studies, to be punctual and habitual and come back to the studies and have sort of that ability to keep track of your calendar. 
um, to keep track of sort of the PKs or, you know, all the sort of logistic burdens of studies. Across all these dimensions, they're very dissimilar than the average patients with cancer. Um, and what, is, what does that mean? Well, I guess I'll give one more piece of data. You know, Kaiser Permanente, sort of a large representative U.S. Um, healthcare provider, they looked to see like what percent of our lung cancer patients would be eligible for this lung cancer clinical trial, and it was about like one in four. Um, but I think the truth is probably even more restrictive than that. Um, that wouldn't be the end of things if drugs work equally in all groups of people. But there's a number of pieces of evidence that I offer in the book that suggest that drugs that work modestly in very, very fit, young, um, well-off people um, work less and less well in older, frailer people with comorbidities. And so survival differences that were maybe two months on a pivotal trial, um, those may vanish in the real world. And I guess the net result of all of this is a question, which is that, is it possible you approve a cancer drug? And is it possible that cancer drug benefits some people, people who are young who have that condition? But is it possible that cancer drug also harms people in the real world who are older, never well studied, may even hasten mortality in some subgroups? Um, and is it possible that the net effect of that approval is absolutely nothing on the mortality rates of that cancer? And I guess that is a provocative question that is unanswered. Um, but that's a question that we don't need to have unanswered. Here again, I, you know, I fault the regulators. Um, regulators in the United States have the legal authority to make sure that drugs benefit people in the United States. And they can tell companies, they can mandate um, academic medical centers have representative patient enrollments. We can have pragmatic clinical trials with loose eligibility criteria. We can really ask the question of, does regorafenib work in colon cancer in the average patient coming in with multiply relapsed colon cancer? Um, and yet we've seen um, a lot of rhetoric on this topic. This is one topic that a lot of people agree with me on, uh, but very little action. And that's, I think, what we talk about in the book. And uh, maybe bridging that to say the accelerated approval system, which is uh, which is one where the FDA could be mandating, you know, that the companies do the studies that they say they're going to do in the real world patient. But uh, you say the, the mandate is not making its way back to, 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 to the companies. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, you're remembering things that I forgot since I've written the book. Uh, yeah, uh, there have been a number of reports, a government accountability office report, a number of independent investigations that all find that, um, you know, in these instances where the FDA makes a promising cancer drug provisionally available to the U.S. population through the accelerated approval pathway. I guess, let me, let me come back to that in a second. Let me just talk a little bit about accelerated approval. I mean, accelerated approval is a pathway that was developed in the wake of HIV AIDS. It was done with the hope of making promising compounds widely available to people with a condition while we sorted out if they were truly beneficial. And um, we were fortunate in the case of HIV AIDS that we had a number of antiretrovirals that were really transformative. We, we kind of forget and we overlook the fact that there were a couple of antiretrovirals that were not very uh, popular and they were not very transformative and they were kind of missteps, but you know, that's okay. We had, we really did have some successes. Um, that paradigm, um, you know, which is good and works in certain situations has been broadly, broadly applied in cancer medicine. It's used for cancers that are rare, that, that are lethal, for which there are few treatment options, which I agree with, but it's also used for cancers that are common, that are indolent, for which there are 80 treatment options, which I question its use in that setting. Um, so accelerated approval is used very widely. But one of the nice things about accelerated approval is why is that the FDA has the legal authority to mandate studies on the back end that these drugs actually work as intended in you know, the real populations or in, in even in ideal populations, just to measure better outcomes. 
Um, but what we find, a number of reports show that they do not enforce those post-marketing commitments. Um, when they do enforce them, they take too long. Um, they never crack the whip. They never withdraw rugs from market. They, I mean, with, with the exception of like one or two examples. Um, and they generally do a poor job of that post-marketing um, phase. And I think they do so because of political pressures. Um, it wasn't easy for them to withdraw the label for Avastin in metastatic breast cancer. Um, it was a contentious fight. Recently, there's a Wall Street Journal article about uh, one lobbyist who said um, his efforts delayed that withdrawal by one year that earned Genentech a billion dollars. That was kind of the, the claim of the Wall Street Journal article. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Um, and and that, that was so contentious. And I think that has left the FDA with little appetite for cracking this whip. Because mm. if you work at the FDA and you start getting death threats, um, you know, you, you might want to do things where you avoid that situation, as anyone would want to. I mean, I don't blame them for not feeling an appetite. Uh, taking away something that people have gotten and that people may psychologically believe helps them um, is very, very difficult. And I'll just draw an analogy. You know, there are lots of people who, you know, use something that we know doesn't help anybody, like, say, I don't know, cupping. And many of those people really do ardently believe that cupping helps them. And similarly, you can have a cancer drug that's given to an indolent cancer, and it may uh, lead to, quote unquote, stable disease, which is disease that hasn't grown more than 20 percent. And somebody may believe it's the cause of their stable disease, even if it's doing absolutely nothing. And if the FDA finds data that shows it does absolutely nothing, but you try telling that person we're going to withdraw this drug from market, if that person in their heart believes it is slowing their cancer growth, it is just as difficult as telling somebody who believes cupping helps their back pain uh, that it doesn't work. You know, I think it's the same challenge. It's psychologically hard. Absolutely. Um, in the interest of time, uh, yeah. you know, all I'm going to do is recommend everyone reads the book because, you know, for me, you, you told me stuff about Avastin that I didn't know. I'd, I'd worked on Avastin and uh, uh, I was fascinated by your views on, on, on Avastin. Um, but uh, maybe the, in terms of passing it on, which which books would you recommend, you know, or have you found particularly useful in this uh, in this environment? In the cancer in the cancer environment? Yeah, cancer or, or kind of medicine in, in, in general? Are there okay. books at the top of your pile? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. Okay. So I guess here's how I would, I would say about cancer. I mean, I guess I'd say, um, you know, uh, part of the motivation for me to write this book about cancer, drug, you know, cancer, drug development, drug policy, health policy, is that I really did feel like there's no book like this on the market, a book that I hope will speak to people like you um, uh, who are in the industry, your audience, or people who may be working on drug development, maybe in cancer or even beyond cancer, but also speak to academics and oncologists. And I also hope that like trainees, because I think I try to give a lot of information on like, how should you interpret clinical trials for a patient in your clinic? Um, so I felt like there was no book out there on this topic. Of course, there's some nice books on the history of cancer, the number of ones that, uh, that, um, uh, that I like. Um, uh, but when I think about like medicine broadly, like what are some books that I really enjoy? I guess I put them in two buckets. I think there's a number of books about sort of the, the, um, the life of a doctor that I think are, are really marvelous. And if I were to recommend them, I guess um, I have my UK bias, but the two books by Henry Marsh, Do No Harm and Admissions, I think are yeah. probably the most honest raw books about what it's like to actually be a doctor, um, actually make decisions that you may come to regret and how you feel about that years later. Um, but when I think about books that sort of inform how do we think about the science of medicine, um, I think about, you know, a couple books I would recommend are um, Overdiagnosed um, by H. Gilbert Welsh, Steve Wolishin, and the late Lisa Schwartz. Um, that's a book about how many of our ideas about um, 
giving er more drug early, sooner to more people, finding disease, but it's not always the case that finding a disease earlier and giving treatments earlier benefit people. So I think it's a very instructive book. Uh, the other book I really like is by Peter Goetje, um, who led the, the Danish Cochrane, and it's called um, Mammographic Screening, Truth, Lies, and Controversy. And I think your, your, uh, your audience will like this as well, because you know you don't have to really be interested in mammography to get a kick out of this book. This is a book about what happens when one individual does a number of studies that really question um, a, a very widely used medical practice. What happens to this person? Um, what do the studies show? What do the data show? And what kind of response does he get? Um, does he get a positive response? Does he find himself in litigation? What happens to his papers? Um, and I think it's really sort of a fascinating story about sort of the sociology around sort of going against the medical grain. And so I highly recommend that as well. Thank you. And, uh, and last question. Um, is there any question that you wish that I had asked you that uh, that I didn't before we sign off? No, I guess I would just say, I mean, I guess I just give you like, you know, what do I hope this uh, um, like book does? I mm -hmm. guess I hope that like, um, like, what do I hope it does in your mind? Like, I, I genuinely hope that somebody reads this book they walk away with sort of a better idea of like, what is it like to actually take care of cancer patients? I've read a lot of books on cancer. I don't want to say all the books, but I read a lot of books, particularly books that are geared at a popular audience, which is what I'm trying to go after. And I think you walk away with it often with sort of a uh, sort of a misrepresentative hero worship view of cancer, that cancer is a string of um, strong people who made bold choices and were successful. And that's why we have the cures we do have. And the reason we don't have cures we don't have was there weren't sort of similar heroes in those spaces. Um, I think that narrative is kind of wrong. I think it ignores so much of history. Um, history is, is kind of problematic because, of course, it's written by the victors. And in retrospect, it's easy to look back and see it as sort of a linear narrative. Um, but when you live it, it's, it's easier to remember all the missteps and the false leads. Um, what I hope with Malignant is that you see that it is kind of a gray history. There are tremendous successes, but there are self-inflicted wounds. There are self-inflicted wounds that we keep cutting year after year. We keep reopening that scar. Um, and I, I think that I hope that like a, a person who reads this will, even if they disagree with some of what I say, might learn some things about things they didn't know and might think about cancer medicine, I think, a little bit differently and, and understand that um, it's, it's trickier than we think. Um, it's harder than we than we wished. Um, there's a biological challenge that we will keep working at, but that might take uh, a thousand years to solve. But in the meantime, there are things that we do as human beings that are man-made obstacles that we put in our own paths. And if we align some of the incentives a little bit better, um, we might still have a for-profit industry that flourishes, which I believe in. Um, we might also see some competition for, as I talk about a little bit, a non-profit drug developer arm of the NIH. Um, we might see regulation that that changes the incentives around um, what it takes to bring a drug to market. But we might see companies respond in turn of, of producing better drugs and, and thinking more critically about what phase three trials to run. We won't have 1,000, you know, add your drug to PDL one but we might have uh, 50 um, drugs added to PDL one that are truly promising. And we might start to measure more what matters to patients. And we might have less drugs on the market, um, like Avastin for breast cancer. So I hope that you know those are some of the goals I had when writing this book. Um, and I guess I would be really grateful if anyone wrote a review about it, even if it's a negative review, because uh, um, uh, it, it's always nice to know how how you know what you wrote, uh, how it generates feedback in, in people.
Yeah, that's phenomenal. And uh, and you know, my kudos to you. I think it's an important book. I think it's it, you know it's well written. It's uh, it's um, informative for you know even someone who uh, you know spends a lot of time reading books on uh, around the subject. So thank you for that. And you know, and if you think of all the things that we should be doing, spending our time doing, I think I think you you certainly contributed to the sort of thoughtfulness that uh, many of us want to uh, approach you know drug development with. So thank you so much, and thank you for the time that uh, that, that, that you've given me today, and um, and good luck with the book. Um, say March, April time. It's April twentieth, twenty twenty. April twentieth, fantastic. I will uh, make sure to link to. Can people pre-order now if they go yeah, to Amazon? Yeah, the best is probably through Amazon, but you can also do it through the Johns Hopkins University uh, Publishers webpage. Nice. Renee, thank you so much for your time, and um, and I hope to uh, get some time to have dinner with you in, in, in the future. I'd love to do that. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It would be a pleasure. Thanks. Good luck. Bye. Thank you. I will